And Benteke said something that really struck me about, well, he's your friend. He said, but he's not your best friend. I think he's very, very clever at diffusing guys who are not happy. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. You ain't shit! I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. Well, fans can be the harshest critics, you know. And they often are. A wife is often the harshest critic <laughs> of her husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof it the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life, because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochford has never spoken to Jim McGinnis in his life. Well, you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through to five o'clock. Now, qualifying is underway for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix this Saturday, the final race of the Formula One season. And for the first time since 1974, the top two drivers in the championship are level on points with one race to go tomorrow. Max Verstappen of the Netherlands in the Red Bull car and Britain's Lewis Hamilton in the Mercedes tied at 369 and a half points each. Verstappen ahead in that he's won nine races this year to Hamilton's eight. Now, if 24-year-old Verstappen wins tomorrow, it'll be his first world title. If Hamilton wins, it'll be a record-breaking eighth crown to move ahead of the great Michael Schumacher. So this week's Saturday panel dedicated to Formula One. We're delighted to be joined by David Kennedy, former driver, commentator, managing director of Theodore Racing and director of Mandela Park, motor racing correspondent of the UK Times and Sunday Times, Rebecca Clancy, and the ex-McLaren driver and a winner of five Formula One Grand Prix races, John Watson. David, Rebecca, and John, you're very welcome to the Saturday panel. Good night. Thank you. Great to have you here uh, on News Talk. And let's just start um, with your own lives and your own careers around this. John Watson, first of all, you were a star of Formula One in the early 80s. What was the life like for a Formula One driver back then, John? Well, life, life in general was very much simpler. We didn't have social media, which is the bane of every aspect of life these days. And while it's very amusing for those that are viewing it or the voyeurs that watch it to be the victim of, of uh, social media today, um, thank goodness it didn't exist, certainly in the 70s and the 80s, because quite frankly, what went on then would, well, where would, where would you start? Even, even David Kennedy must have had moments when he would blanch at the thought of what was going on back when he was racing. We were both racing at a similar time, 70s and 80s. It was a different era as life in general. You look, think about life in Dublin in the 80s, 70s. Dublin was a different city to where it is today. And that is a reflection of where Formula One is. So you're telling me, John, you had a wild time. I think in, re in respect and retrospect, probably I had, certainly compared to where the, I mean, first of all, some of the drivers today, I don't know if they know how to have fun because they're so controlled. They're controlled by their management. They're controlled by their teams. They're controlled by virtually Formula One. So it's very difficult for those drivers to, let's say, have the, the, the freedoms that were around, certainly in the 70s and the 80s. And certainly, I mean, you think about going to races in South America, South Africa, and other what we call flyaway events, when you're away for maybe two or three weeks at a stretch. It was a, just a wonderful occasion, lots of fun. I mean, innocent fun, in fairness. And I don't see that being replicated today. Now, I might be wrong because I'm not a current Grand Prix driver. I don't have insight into what the kids, I call them kids, would do in their downtime. But certainly someone like Lewis Hamilton, he's got interests which are music, fashion, and maybe even getting into politics. But we would do just the normal crazy things guys of our age would have done, and we had fun doing it. David Kennedy, were you a party animal like John? Uh, well, you mentioned the 80s, and really it's quite a considerable difference to the times that we have now. And uh, I, I remember actually being inspired by John, John Watson, and uh, can't make his ego any bigger now, but uh, he was really outstanding from a perspective of coming from Ireland where there was no history and no pedigree of motorsport. John was one of the few guys that we could sort of link into and see that it could be done. Uh, and I think in truth, I, I think John and, and like the rest of us, we're so dedicated to trying to achieve the impossible. It was like 
at the time, if you think about the 70s, you know, there was a, a, a war on in the Middle East. It was a fuel crisis. Your parents were on a three day week. It was an incredibly tough time. So certainly our introduction to the sport would not have been about parking. It would have been about surviving, getting the money to go motor racing and really dedicating yourself to trying to achieve something. I think the party piece is possibly a little bit blown out of proportion, to be quite honest. And I think the drivers that I find coming through now are the most incredibly well-honed, trained athletes uh, and possibly could do it a little bit more parking. Rebecca, when you are following Grand Prix and you've been in the Middle East for the last few weeks and you're, you're in the pit lane and you're seeing everybody up close and personal, what do you think you need? What do you think you need to have in you, Rebecca, to be a Formula One driver from seeing these guys up close and personal? Not partying skills, I can absolutely confirm that. I mean, they don't, they don't really drink, they don't go out partying. It's funny listening to John then talking about the 70s and 80s, but I know a few drivers who have told me stories from the 90s and the early noughties who are very grateful that social media didn't exist in their day. Uh, and well, I, I won't tell you the stories, let's put it that way. But the drivers now, like we were speaking to Max Verstappen the other day, and, and we have these fan questions now, which happened in the press conference, and one of them to Max Verstappen was, you know, what are your hobbies? And he said, well, you know, it's racing really, like that's what I do. If I'm not at a track and I'm not racing, then I just go home and I sit in my simulator. And, you know, he's not alone. And Lando Norris, his big thing now, he used to be, you know, he's still a big gamer, but his big thing now is he plays golf. And so, you know, he was teammates at McLaren last year with um, Carlos Sainz and they still play golf together now. They're very competitive when they play golf. Now Charles Leclerc, so Carlos Sainz has moved to Ferrari, so Charles Leclerc, Charles Leclerc goes and plays golf with them now. It's all very sedentary. There's none of this going out late at night. And, you know, it's a much more, um, not to sort of put it down on the sort of 70s and 80s, but it's very professional now. And there's so much technology in these cars and they're so complicated. And at the start of every year, I remember Daniel Ricciardo saying when he moves to McLaren, he just got given an enormous book and told to learn it. And it's your steering wheel and it's every mode and it's every hidden message and you just have to sit there and you have to study these things and you don't really have the luxury I suppose well not luxury but there's just no lifestyle really of going out and partying you certainly don't party with each other like they used to back in the day. John what was the thrill like when you were driving Formula One cars around Monaco and winning in Silverstone? Well certainly going back to the 70s Monaco was it's the, the most pure street track that exists even to this day We've got other street tracks in Baku, and I suppose you might call Jeddah uh, a street track as well. And again, the, I suppose the thing that makes Monaco special is that in reality, while there have been small changes to the racetrack, it is fundamentally the same racetrack that was used in its introduction back in 1929. And the streets have fundamentally remained unchanged. There's a little bit more safety around, but still very marginal. So Monaco is a standout circuit, but where all the other racetracks are concerned, the ones that we would have raced on permanent racetracks, very few of them exist in anywhere near their original form because the requirements of safety and runoff areas, you know, well, there's, a, there's an equation wherein the speed of a corner, the entry mid and uh, exit speed of a corner is calculated. And therefore you have to build into that calculation the amount of runoff area that is required to make sure that if there's an accident, as we saw at Silverstone with Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton, that a massive accident that probably started off at about 170 miles an hour ended up in a barrier, I think it was a tech pro barrier or certainly a tire barrier, and Verstappen was virtually uninjured, I mean, very shaken and no doubt very bruised. But in back in our era, we didn't have that runoff and there were much more solid things to hit. And Monaco was maybe was the extreme of that, but the, the other side of the corner of Monaco was that fundamentally its lap speed or average speed was on the lower side, but still coming down through the tunnel, down into the chicane, then all the way down to the back was a pretty quick part of the racetrack. Were you scared of dying? Did you ever come into your mind, John? Well, dying was something that was always a passenger in the car with us, but I think we all felt that we had the capacity and then, well, maybe you say intelligence, that's maybe that, not the right word to use, but the, the racing now is to avoid what was then a very dangerous sport. A lot of incidents and accidents that occurred were not always the cause of a driver making a mistake. It was caused by mechanical failures, you know, other forms of uh, failure that were beyond the driver's control. So you're having to react very much to what might suddenly you find yourself in a situation which was life-threatening. Again, today, because of the nature of circuits and the runoff that you've got, and I mean, some circuits, I mean, 
maybe the, the what we saw in uh, Jeddah this weekend in Saudi Arabia was almost back to old school in that if you make a mistake at high speed, you're going to hit something pretty hard. Whereas going to Abu Dhabi this coming weekend, it's what would be maybe be called a, a much more modern and therefore built into it are the safety uh, requirements that would make it in the incident, uh, in the case of an incident, a safer venue to have an accident at rather than, let's say, going to some circus like maybe Interlagos in Brazil in the early 70s or Nürburgring or other circuits, even the Österreich Ring, which is now the home of the Austrian Grand Prix, a truncated circuit and all the much poorer for us. Yeah, far safer now. I was just going through the crashes then and, and the vitalities, 15 and the 50s, 14 and the 60s, 12 and the 70s, 4 the 80s, 2 and the 90s. Sadly, Ayrton Senna uh, has crashed at, at Imola. It was absolutely tragic. And David, uh, like, there's that aspect of the, the circuits and also the clothing, like things like fire-resistant gear, you know, the halo, the, the helmets. I suppose it's a, as safe as it could be now. Would you agree? Well, uh, John and I have been through an extraordinary... I've seen an extraordinary change over the years. John was there some years before I was, where the monocoques were just a straight aluminium tube, like a Coca-Cola can. And if you hit it, it would just concertina up. Uh, I was one of the first, when I started, the cars began with the honeycomb uh, construction, and then with that, with Kevlar, and they came incredibly strong. I mean, John just alluded to the accidents in Jeddah. I think one of them there suffered a 72 G, that's a phenomenal accident. And in the days that when I was driving or John, the car would have split open and you would have been out on the road. So with the halo, the construction, the deformable structures, and then you add to that the hands neck brace to protect the head from moving forward, the fire suits uh, and the cameras that are employed in the circuits to see where the trajectory would be if you spin off the circuit. It's incredibly safe. I mean, you talk about were we aware of danger? We were, but it, it never would happen to us. Uh, I think, you know, the male brain <laughs> matures very, very late and a sense of mortality, I don't think really touches you to, as Nikki Laudowitz said, till you've been hit on the head a couple of times. Do you realize, hey, hey this could hurt. I could be seriously injured here. And uh, I know John has seen some pretty horrendous accidents. I've had the closest misses you could possibly imagine going off, trying to qualify in Argentina at 180 miles an hour. And I spun between two fire tenders. <laughs> they shouldn't have been there, but you, you didn't think about that in those days. Uh, they wouldn't have found me if I'd hit them. And on the other side of the circuit was a lake, which they used to be uh, crocodiles or caimans in. So if you weren't eaten alive, <laughs> you were decapitated. It was an incredibly dangerous time. Uh, and I must say, uh, like John, uh, I probably, uh, well, I certainly think my greatest success is that my legs are still attached to my arse. I think we are all grateful for that, David, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, when you're, when you're seeing these guys week to week at the moment in the 2021 season, and we had that Roman Grosjean, that uh, horrendous uh, accident in Bahrain there not too long ago, uh, there's a lot of high fives and there's a lot of um, hooping and hollering and, and everybody backslapping each other. But also, I'm sure there's an underlying current of um, the fact that the lads know that it could be their last race um, through accident or, or injury. And there's always probably an underlying fear there, Rebecca. Yeah, I mean, uh, part of the danger is one of the reasons that they love going racing. It's what they always tell you. I don't know what David and John would say, but if you made it completely safe and there was no risk, I'm not sure any of the 20 drivers would actually do it. It's part of that adrenaline rush, the drive that you get. You obviously don't want to hurt yourself. You definitely don't want to die. But that, that element of risk is always there. It's, you know, from the days of karting, when they start out, it's always part of what they do. So you can't completely remove it. I and mean, we saw in Jeddah, for example, I mean, David mentioned it there, the 71G, that was in Formula 2, and it was Fittipaldi went into a car that had stalled on the grid, it was Porsche. And Fittipaldi, he broke his ankle. He broke his um, heel, sorry. That's it. That's all that happened. He crashed at 71G and he broke his heel. And I mean, the safety of these cars is un like, it's unbelievable. But then, you know, we have had deaths. So we saw in 2014, Joel Bianchi, he crashed into a crane in wet weather in Japan. He died from his injuries a year later. We saw again in Formula 2, Antoine Hubert died in um, 2019 in Spa because of a, a crash, a horrific crash. Um, so we do, we do still have danger, and we spoke to the drivers after that death in um, Belgium of Hubert, because that happened on the Saturday, and they had to go racing on the Sunday. It happened after their qualifying, and we spoke to the drivers after the race on the Sunday, and we said to them, do you think about your own mortality? Do you think about the inherent risks every time you step into that car? And they all just said, no, you can't. 
you just put the helmet on and you go racing. It's a different mindset. You don't, you don't allow yourself to think about that. And then you speak to their parents and their parents can't even watch because they know, you know the risk that's going to happen. And it's terrifying for them. But for the drivers themselves, from those I spoke to, particularly that weekend in Spa, that they don't, they don't, they can't dwell on it. You know, this is their job. And if they thought about it, they wouldn't drive on that street track in Jeddah at 200 miles an hour with only millimeters to spare to that wall. They wouldn't be able to do their job. What do you make of the cars then at the moment, John? Well, there's progress. I mean, in terms of safety, it's a massive, massive step forward from the days. And the, you know, the first monocoque Formula One car was Jim Clark's Lotus back in 1962, I think it was. An aluminium, I mean, like a cigar tube to where we are today with the extensive use of carbon fiber and the technology that goes into the manufacture and or the design, first of all, then the manufacture of these cars. And again, the regulations that are stipulated by the FIA uh, are now, one might say extreme. The downside I feel is that uh, in terms of you know, these rules and regulations, a lot of the identity of teams has been lost because basically the outline of a car is now being determined by the FIA. And there's not an awful lot of individuality coming into the actual design of the chassis. There is in other parts of the car, maybe certain parts of the bodywork and certain parts of the wings, and then suspension. But the core of the car, the tub, the bit the driver sits in, is now, I mean, it's well, the reason why Jules Bianchi unfortunately lost his life is because he stopped in a very short distance. And while the car stopped and he stopped, but basically his brain didn't. And the injury he suffered was the consequence of your organs not stopping when your body does stop. So that's one of the concerns I think that we have. And certainly the accident that we saw on the, on the start of the Formula 2 race with Fittipaldi and Pocher, there was an incident like that back in 1982 in the Canadian Grand Prix. A young Italian driver, Riccardo Paletti, at the back of the field, made a charge up through the field at the start. He didn't realise Didier Peroni hadn't made the start and drove straight into the back of him and he died as a consequence. And in a lesser formula, young Billy Munger, who was racing in a Formula Renault at Donington Park about three years ago, actually on the racetrack, ran into a slower car and the consequences were you know, life-changing for Billy Munger. I mean, he's made a wonderful recovery and he's a great asset now to Channel 4 on their broadcast. But that was an incident where even with the technology that junior Formula cars have, which in, compared to what I had, in the 70s and 80s was a massive step forward, there are still areas of exposure and danger to drivers. And while I like to think that they do have an awareness, sometimes when I watch, and certainly in the junior formula, and I mean, at Spa, up through Eau Rouge and through Radio, it's a blind crest, and they're going through there virtually flat out. And you cannot necessarily see if there's been an incident until you arrive in the scene of the incident. So, Sometimes I feel they drive on blind faith rather than on judgment, but that's maybe a, a view that you'd get from a driver of my era. And David, I always want to look at a Formula One race the pressure these mechanics are under, not only for the car to get the car in the best spec, but also when the drivers come into the pits to get everything right. And you must have seen a lot of incidents around the pits where uh, everybody is under the gun in terms of getting everything right. Yes, uh, it's pretty spectacular when you see the pit times. Now, I was just looking at them this year. Uh, the fastest, I think, was uh, one second point nine seven, uh, and I think it was uh, Max Verstappen uh, two or three times got in under two seconds on a pit stop. Is just mind-boggling, incredible, and uh, the opportunity for making a mistake. Uh, has somewhat diminished because there isn't the fueling aspect. If you remember some years back uh, when uh, pit stop with Benetton, and I think it was uh, Josh Verstappen made the pit stop, but the, there was a little bit of fuel leak and, and all of a sudden you had this huge fire. Uh, and that can happen in a heartbeat in any of the categories where there's refueling required, but that's, that, that, that's uh, now gone. But also just looking at your other question about the cars, I think, What's significant about Formula One is, is that first, the, the, the journey towards safety, it's been simply phenomenal. And I think that spills over to road cars, deformable structures, steering wheel columns that can collapse into the car have, has been quite outstanding. But the other side of it, I think we've lost a little bit is that 
my view is always the car should be more powerful than the driver can control. And there's so much telemetry now in the cars that it takes away some of that skill. What you should have is more power than you can manage. In other words, if you put full throttle, you'll have wheel spin all the way along the line. When you're coming out of the corner, if you put full throttle, you'll have what's called power oversteer. And that really enhances or at least makes it more visible the skills that the driver have and the more telemetry you put in there it takes a little bit of that away and some of that now i think has diminished some of the sport uh, the sporting skill of a driver but you still have to take your hat off to the techno technological leaps that they've made now both in the pits and in the cars yeah and the appeal of it rebecca like i was watching the drive to survive series on netflix and i'm looking at this and i'm thinking I'm, I'm watching a computer game that i'm playing here these guys are going so fast and for a younger generation, do you think this has been a real uh, Philip and a real boon for Formula One as a sport to have this series on Netflix? Because it reminds me a bit of The Last Dance. I did. I don't like basketball that much. And then I watched Michael Jordan. I thought it was fantastic. And with Formula One, I would have watched PK and uh, Prost and Senna and Mansell in the 80s and, and Schumacher and Hill in the 90s. And then I would have gone away from it. This has got me back into it. Would you agree that this really you. had an impact? Oh, massively. And I agree with you. I'd love to have seen the cameras rolling back in the 80s and 90s because they would have ended up in the nightclubs and that would have been great footage. But it's definitely made an impact. Um, the crowds in Austin, we were there um, last month and it was undeniable that Netflix has had a huge impact on the sport there. So it was a sellout. They, I know everywhere we've been so far is sort of a sellout. But it was 400,000 people there. And sometimes, you know, when you're in a football ground or a rugby, wherever you are, and they give you the number and you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. They really were. It felt like there were 400,000 people there. And when you leave the track, there's, um, there's a bit where the drivers and the teams and, and the rest of us come out, you know, but like no one stops us. But we have to go out the same way. And we, we couldn't get out because there were so many fans there. And you know, I've never seen that before. Like for the years and years I've been doing this, I've never known it. And we were having to end up walking on the road and then the drivers would come out and they would have to drive around us to get out while we were trying to get around from the fans who were all there. And the drivers were saying that when they were in downtown Austin, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't go anywhere. Normally you'd be able to go into town and you'd be able to go to a restaurant. You'd probably stay in your hotel restaurant or whatever. But they couldn't go anywhere without being stopped. And Lando Norris said to me one day, he was like, I swear they're sleeping in my lobby. Like they're there when I go to bed, they're there when I wake up, they're there when I do anything, they're just always there. And then in the Ferrari hotel, they had to put in a cordon. So they hadn't actually thought about this for some reason. But in the Ferrari hotel, oh no, this was in Brazil actually, in the Ferrari hotel, they had to put a rope line because every time the drivers went in, they were getting mobbed. And then eventually when they put the rope line in, these two girls started fighting and one of them ended up on the floor and there was blood and they were just going mad. And then people were obviously talking to them and I was speaking to a couple of the PR girls and they were saying, everyone's talking about Drive to Survive and it's having a huge impact. And you can see the age of the fans coming down, you know, groups of people coming and they're, you know, in their twenties and they're all talking about it and they're loving it. And it's been great. It has been really good for the sport. And the nuances of the coverage today, you did a lot of commentary for RT when you were doing Formula One and, um, even like now, the, the TV angles, the technology, even last week when the Hamilton and uh, Verstappen were involved in that uh, collision, it really is at, at the zenith of, of high-tech uh, television now on a global scale. Yeah, that, that's so enjoyable. Uh, it just gives the audience so much more information if they want to log, log into it. So for the real nerd, it's all there for them. He can pull out all the nuances, the braking pressures, the speed in the mid-corner, uh, the exit speed, the top speeds at the straight. It's absolutely stunning. And then for the general viewer, uh, you've got Netflix, which has painted the pictures, given you the personalities, has told you the backstory. You've got involved with the team around just the driver. Because to some degree, you know, there's a helmet in individual that you don't see that you can't link into but it's brought you netflix has brought you to his home and it's it's met his family it's it's told you the story and and that's quite fascinating and that really has worked but the, the technological side of commentating now has really moved forward john has experienced the changes over the years i remember when we were commentating in uh, argentina i think it was one of our first ones for rte and it was a very good lesson I learned. We have a great producer, you'd know him, John, Michael O'Carroll. And yeah. he, he would always bring with him gifts for the engineers. And he'd give them little bottles of whiskey and little bottles of Jemison or whatever it was. And there was a complete power failure for something like 40 countries now couldn't commentate 
on the, on the Grand Prix. So what happened was because Michael had given these gifts to the engineers, they came down and fixed little old RTE before BBC or German TV or French TV. So, so it, it, it's quite basic. I must say when they did get the power up, we then got an electric shock from the table that we were sitting on. <laughs> so, so yeah, we have seen, I never knew you could die as a commentator, but there, there was an incident that we, uh, well, our hair stood up on, our, on, on its end. But uh, no, that, that's really brought great colour and information to, to, the, to the spectators. Don't go to Argentina again, uh, David, because there's crocodiles, there's electric shocks. Uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen the next time. Uh, when I grew up, I watched Formula One, John, when you were racing, it was, it was Murray Walker and James Hunt, and that was it. And it was very sad to lose Murray this year. Yeah, I mean, Murray's been a wonderful, um, what's the word, uh, ambassador, ambassador for motorsport in general, motorcycling initially, and then motorsport car racing, Formula One in particular. But a bit of rally cross and anything out of four wheels that was going around a racetrack or whatever. And Murray, I think he must have been 96, 97 when he passed away. And his contribution, certainly if I think back to the era when I was racing, and Formula One wasn't actually broadcast live every Grand Prix until about the middle, late 70s. In the early 70s, you had to rely upon piecemeal, maybe sports, sports view in the middle of the week on a Wednesday evening. And I had to, when talking about Argentina, and I tell you, Argentina, I love, I love Argentina. The racetrack, fantastic. The city, brilliant. The food, if you like steaks, if you're a vegan, forget about it. But then forget about being, you know what. It's just a wonderful place. But after the race finished, got back to the hotel, I wanted to ring my family to say, look, this is what happened. I had to book a phone line. It took about five hours to get a phone line to ring from Buenos Aires to Northern Ireland. And that's where technology in those days was. And I mean, one day maybe Argentina will return to the Formula One calendar. I sincerely hope it does, because of course, the legend that's Juan Manuel Fangio, the most, I mean, I think the greatest Formula One driver ever, being Argentinian, winning five world championships, but more winning them in four different make of cars. So Argentina, please bring it back. I think it would, Argentina will love it. You think the crowds were big in Austin, Rachel? I tell you, the crowds in Buenos Aires are just magnificent. Yeah, we got to take a break now. We're going to be back with more uh, in the second half of the Saturday panel on Formula One with John Watson, Rebecca Clancy, and David Kennedy after the news. Please stay with us. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. Well, you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through to five. The second half of the Saturday panel on Off the Ball as we preview. The grand finale of the Formula One season tomorrow. Lewis Hamilton versus Max Verstappen for the title. Delighted to be in the company of David Kennedy, former driver, commentator, managing director of Theodore Racing and director of Mondello Park, motor racing correspondent of the UK Times and the Sunday Times, Rebecca Clancy, and the ex-McLaren driver and a winner of five Formula One Grand Prix races, John Watson. So let's get into tomorrow, folks. Rebecca, you've written in the Times about all the past rivalries this week. And I think this is a really uh, uh, intense rivalry between Lewis Hamilton and uh, Max Verstappen because he got the king going for his eighth title and he got the young pretender. Yeah, I think it may even be the most intense, I would say, because it's not just about what's happening on the track anymore. We've seen them going wheel to wheel since the first race in Bahrain. That was controversy then, the overtake from Max Verstappen on Lewis Hamilton that he was made to give back because he went off the track, sort of copy, paste, repeat throughout the year. And um, yeah, and then it's just between their team principals. So Christian Horner at Red Bull, he's been calling Toto Wolf, his rival over at Mercedes, a pantomime dame, and they've been slugging it out between the media themselves and moaning about each other and moaning about the teams. And then we've had this big controversy in Brazil recently where Red Bull thought that the Mercedes rear wing was illegal. Well, they didn't use the word cheating they, they took themselves off to the FIA the sports governing body and asked as they put it some questions which is basically a team's way these days of saying we want you to investigate this because we think there's something a bit dodgy going on um, they have said that they will protest they were all, all sorts of questions about Mercedes Supreme straight, straight line speed um, and they have just been at loggerheads the whole time and as those two, Christian Horner and Tosa Wolf, have been going at it. We've slowly watched the demise of Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton's relationship. At the start of the year, they would fist pump when they went up to the podium, congratulate each other as they won race, whichever way around it was. They'd spray champagne over each other on the podium. Within our press conferences, there'd be a few jokes here and there. They'd get a question that they didn't particularly like. They'd sort of talk about it between themselves. 
And slowly as we've creeped towards the business end of the season, that's all fading away now. And they won't even look at each other. We saw it on the podium on um, last weekend in Jeddah. Max Verstappen finished second, just head bowed, didn't even make eye contact, did a quick thanks very much, took his rose water. I mean, it is disgusting to be fair to him. He said afterwards he left the podium because there was no champagne. He took his rose water and he just left and left. It was Lewis Hamilton with his teammate Valtteri Bottas up there. They enjoyed the celebrations and that was it. That was the end of it. In the press conference, they almost faced away from each other. As soon as it was over, they got straight up, no talking, it was gone. Um, you know, there's no love lost there. They're not going for dinner any night soon. You know, I very much wonder if they'll even congratulate each other on Sunday, whoever is the victor. Their relationship has diminished now beyond a point where there's no cordiality even, I would say. Amazing. And uh, we've had a lot of uh, close rivals in the past. You had Schumacher and Hill in the 90s and you had uh, Prost and Piquet and Mansell in the 80s and, and probably good nature rivalry between Nicky Lauda and James Hunt in the 70s, which that turned into the movie Rush. Do you like Verstappen as a driver, John Watson? He's edgy. He's a bit moody. He's a young lad. He's uh, pretty determined to win at all costs. Do you like that? Uh, I mean, Max is outstanding. His skill, his courage, his commitment, but sometimes his judgment, I feel, is uh, questionable. He is one of those drivers who follows the philosophy, never give up, never concede. And there's a time at every racing driver's race or corner, I'm thinking about Silverstone this year, two cars going into cops side by side, Max on the outside. Max didn't need to do that, in my opinion. He could have conceded to Lewis because Lewis would have run wide in the exit and Max would have been able to undercut and get up alongside and take the lead away going up into Beckett's. But he has got this mentality of never, never give up, never concede, never do anything that would and maybe indicate that there's a fundamental weakness in your makeup and in your challenge to another racing driver. And it has got them into trouble. And Monza, another case where, again, a move which I felt was ill-judged. And then looking what happened at, uh, in Jeddah at the weekend, he was given an instruction to let Lewis go past. He slowed down, but Lewis didn't move because he hadn't received the message at the same time. And then... It appears that Max slowed down even more quickly. Now, whether he brake tested or whether he downshifted, I don't know. But that action to me was unacceptable because even though the cars were not going at race speed, they were still traveling 120 miles an hour. And had the contact been more serious, it would have been the outcome of the race clearly would have been affected. And ultimately, the outcome of the championship could have been affected as well. Davis, Lewis Hamilton is going for eight world titles. If he wins tomorrow, if he comes ahead of Max Verstappen, he'll beat the great Michael Schumacher's record. It took him six years between the first and the second, 08 to 14. In your view, because people will go, oh, he's just in the best car. What has made Lewis Hamilton great in your view? Well, from day one, when he sat alongside one of the best drivers we've ever seen, Fernando Alonso, he was able to take the battle to him straight away. I remember him practicing and qualifying in Australia in his first weekend at a Grand Prix, and he was absolutely outstanding. So there's no question from day one, he's had the raw speed. And we've seen it over the years. We've seen him mature. We've seen him develop. He kept his head on the shoulders. And going for this championship now, it's a fabulous contrast between the old fox and the young pup. Uh, and we heard that articulated very capably by Lewis when he was asked after the race with all the contrast that happened and the chaos of the titanic battle that we had just seen, how relaxed Lewis was and how he explained was, I had to keep my head together. I had to manage all the situations. I had not got the panic. But it was a lovely piece on the radio when he was quite anxious when uh, uh, Max had taken the lead of the race or when they had the, the pit stop and they could go out on different tyres. You could feel the angst in his voice, as you would expect a sportsman who's driving within a fraction of an inch of the concrete barriers around there. I mean, when you look at that Jeddah race, it was simply phenomenal. Two drivers at the top of their game, leaving nothing on the table. It was thrilling TV. And as a sportsman, as an ex-racer, I just sat on the edge of my chair saying, we, this can't last. We won't be able to get away with it. But we've seen it time and time again when it comes to a final event like this with two drivers, with two polar opposite type of environments coming together. And this will be a clash. This is going to be quite raw. And this is going to be rusted rivets. I, I have no doubt about it. I mean, John, you alluded to it about those battles in the early days where we saw in Australia, Schumacher crashing into Hill. We saw that accident. We saw again in Suzuka, Japan, we had Prost and Senna in, in 89. And in 90, when Senna just 
drove straight, in, straight into the side of Prost. You know, this is quite instinctive. A lot of it, I think, is, is very rarely is, is it premeditated. You're talking about in the nature of the drivers. I think the best one of all, I don't know whether John agrees with it or not, when we saw the accident between in Jerez, between Villeneuve and Schumacher, when Villeneuve jumped alongside Schumacher, instantly Schumacher turned the wheel. There was no premeditated thought, it was just instinct. And it, it reminds me of a story that's an old Russian fable about the scorpion and the frog. I don't know if you know that one. Yeah. It, it, so where the water is rising and the, frog, the scorpion has to get onto dry land. And the scorpion grabs the frog and says, you take me to safety across there. And of course, the frog has no choice but to give him a lift. Uh, and of course, on the way over, the scorpion kills the frog and the frog drowns. And before they drown, the frog says, why, why did you do that? And the scorpions reply, it's in my nature. And I think that's what we're going to have in Abu Dhabi. That's what we're going to see. If they are together on the circuit, you will have an accident. And I think for Lewis Hamilton's perspective, then, John, is to be ahead, to be ahead of Verstappen on the grid. Absolutely. I mean, his, his job is to get pole position and has been the history of, the, of Abu Dhabi as a racetrack. He who's on pole position inevitably will win the Grand Prix. You get into turn one first and then you can control the race thereafter. But remember, this year, the circuit has been quite, quite significantly revised, especially down at the far end where you went through a sort of a nest bend before you got to the hairpin. Well, now that's a straight run down in. So that's going to change the entry and the, well, the dynamic of that part of the racetrack. And then at the extreme opposite end of the circuit, you've now got a, a long banked left-hand corner, again, getting rid of that sort of unnecessary chicane. So the circuit most likely, and assuming that Mercedes may reinstall the engine that Lewis used so successfully in Brazil, which was a cracking engine, may be a combination of the changes to the circuit that engine, that power unit, and just Lewis, who was sublime. The way he drove the race in, in, Abu, in, sorry, in, uh, in Saudi at the weekend, it, it, it just it oozed quality. It just oozed quality. And Max, unfortunately, was having to get himself involved in, in tactics, which I felt were outside of what I would consider to be appropriate for a Grand Prix driver of that level. So I don't know what's going to happen when we get to Abu Dhabi, whether we'll see Red Bull finding more pace, there's suggestions that they may have got something that they will, the last roll of the dice for them. But I do hope that whatever occurs on racetrack is not a repeat of what we did see in Jeddah at the weekend. Christian Horner said it's going to be a fair fight, John. Uh, from a racing driver's perspective, and they're competitive guys, the World Championship is on the line, Max Verstappen's never won it. Is there a subconscious temptation to take him out? I don't believe that will happen. I think that it would be it was too obvious. And if one driver took the other out in a premeditated uh, move, then that driver would be subject to I think, enormous disciplinary and probably you know, could lose his license for a significantly long time. So I don't see the individual drivers deliberately taking one another out. But opening corner at first lap, it's easy for a car to run up the inside of another, to cut a tire down, to do any number of different things. And remember, you've got teammates in the respective teams, so one might suggest that they could become the torpedoes or whatever. But again, I'm not looking at that as being uh, really a significant part of the Grand Prix. I sincerely hope, I sincerely hope that what we see is a, an appropriate end to an amazing championship year and that there is a sort of degree of maybe honour amongst these drivers to ensure that they give the public at large a wonderful show and don't revert to, to tactics which would bring, for me, bring the individual into disrepute, the sport into disrepute. We've seen enough of that this year. You know, you're talking about the team principles and, and Christian Horner calling, uh, what's his name? Uh, Toto Wolf. Oh, Toto, sorry. Calling Toto a pantomime dame. Well, Christian Horner is the biggest microphone hog God ever put breath in. <laughs> because if you go to a karaoke party, you can't get the microphone because and Christian loves the microphone. He's never off TV. He's in there promoting the team, promoting himself. Honestly, these guys are not the story, and they have they themselves have been unedifying in the way they've conducted their little battle going on between the two team principals. Tell those two guys to shut up. Let's have a race. Let's see the championship battle being determined cleanly, honestly, and fairly on the circuit. 
and may the best driver team package win. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, and we're not trying to cast aspersions on on Max uh, at all. I, I I just know that in the past it just got it has got uh, tight uh, between say like Senna and Prost and Schumacher and Villeneuve, and in the heat of the moment anything can happen. These guys have clashed three times this season, Rebecca. Rebecca, we don't want to see this go the wrong way from a PR perspective. Uh, everybody in the world is going to be watching this. We want to see this to be a gladiatorial fight where just the best man wins. Oh, absolutely. No one wants to see it. Don't want to see it in the stewards' room. We've been. They've been summoned up to the stewards' room umpteen times already this year. Don't want to see that. Don't want to see a car on the gravel trap. Don't want to see any of that. But going back to what John was saying, you know, it's instinctive, obviously, what they do. But Max and Lewis, their history isn't just this year. It goes back, you can go back to Mexico in 2018, and Lewis Hamilton came out, and they had a crash. They crashed on the first corner. And Lewis Hamilton came out and said, oh, he torpedoed me. He's just a magnet for these things. Everyone knows you have to give him more room. Now, their rivalry has been rumbling on for ages. We've all known that these are the two great drivers of their generation. We've been waiting and waiting for this to happen this year. We finally got it. They finally had all of these flashpoints. It's been more dramatic than any of us thought it would be. I am concerned about this weekend. I'm concerned that it may not be resolved honorably, um, shall we say, because one of the big issues is that Verstappen has been allowed to get away with a lot. And he even made a joke about it in Saudi Arabia when we spoke to him and he said about pushing um, Hamilton wide on that lap 37 in the first corner. He said, well, you know, in Brazil, I didn't get a penalty, but here I do. And so he knows what he's doing isn't quite right. He knows that he's pushing it to the very limits. But because the FIA haven't stepped in with any kind of consistency at all this year, he's just been pushing and pushing and pushing. And so I don't think it will be with malice, but I think it will be with intent that he wants to win his Maiden World Championship. And I think he will push as far as he possibly can. And we know that he pushes too far sometimes. And because sometimes he gets away with it, sometimes he doesn't. But we've mentioned Jerez already in 97. Schumacher didn't get away with it again with Phil Nerve. He got away with it in 94, Damon Hill, when he crashed into him. But he didn't get away with it in 97. He was stripped of all of his points from that year and he lost out on the second place in the championship. He obviously doesn't care about finishing second. But anyway, he was stripped from the world championship. So there is a precedent. And actually, Damon Hill, to be fair to him, came out this week and said, I think Michael Massey, the race director at the FIA, he needs to sit down with not, he said both drivers, but I actually think all 20 drivers need to be involved because there's a lot of confusion about what is and what isn't considered hard racing. And they need to be told what they can do because we saw it in Brazil with Max Verstappen. He put, pushed Lewis Hamilton so far wide off the track that they both went off track. And the incident was noted by the stewards, but nothing happened. And then we arrive in Qatar the next race. They have the driver's meeting. It lasts an hour, which for a driver's meeting is ludicrously long because none of them ever like being up there. And we spoke to them about it when they came out and we said, you know, is there any clarity about what is allowed within the rules of racing? And they said no. And then we saw it again in Saudi Arabia when we were talking about track limits. And Lewis Hamilton just said, well, most of us know what the track limits are and what the white lines mean. We follow the rules, but there's always one of us that doesn't. And there's that inconsistency. It's that kind of chiming on each other and it's for staff and pushing it too far. So I am worried about this weekend. What's the legacy going to be, David? If Verstappen wins, is he going to be the dominant player in the sport for the next decade? If Hamilton wins, he'll have eight world titles. Will he be seen as the greatest of all time? Well, just given the record that Hamilton has uh, put together, it's, it's pretty phenomenal, his, his number of wins, pole positions. He's just broken every record uh, that there is. Uh, you look at uh, Max now. Max has been a couple of years, I'm not going to say in the wilderness, but he hasn't had a car to be able to... Uh, capitalize on the phenomenal talent that he has. I remember seeing him first in a Formula 3 race in 2014 in Macau. And funny, funnily enough, uh, I would see a lot of the young drivers coming through that particular event. I remember that weekend we had Giovinazzi, we had Nicolas Latif. Uh, there were several young kids on the block uh, there trying to win that race. And Max, in his first time in Macau, every time he went out, he was either quickest or he crashed. And it seemed that legacy seemed to follow. We had that incredible speed. And I think if he can capitalize on the success that he's had this year and win, you might see a much more relaxed driver. We often see it in other sports. Once you can break through that barrier and you can become a consistent winner or a champion, the monkey is off your back. Then you really are can relax into your skill and not feel that enormous pressure. 
Because believe me, when those drivers leave their hotel room in the morning to go to that race, they have one thing in mind, and that's to win the championship, no matter what it takes. All the management, all the meetings, all the FIA meetings will be gone. And when they put the helmet on and the visor comes down, they are prepared to do anything. And with a championship, championship at stake, Max will do anything to win it. Okay, well, we'll see how that plays out. Just, John, you've been involved in the game for such a long period of time in, in terms of racing and Formula 1s and that, as well as David. Who would you say has been the greatest driver you've ever seen? Well, probably the greatest driver in my memory was, um, I saw him when I was nine years old. A race at Dundrod, just outside Belfast, it's called the Tourist Trophy. The driver was amongst them, Sterling Moss, Mike Hawthorne, Desmond Titterington, who was a pathfinder uh, in Irish racing drivers in the early 50s, didn't have a long career, but certainly was in that mix of top drivers. But the driver I'm referring to is, is Fangio, because in the era in which Fangio was the dominant driver, he won those five world championships. I, don't, I mean, you're talking about dangerous in current Formula One or in my era. They were nothing compared to racing around and rod in a 300 SLR Mercedes-Benz, or even worse, he drove a V16 BRF, one and a half litre supercharged V16 BRF. I mean, <laughs> how scary can you be? So I always defer to Fangio as being the driver, the greatest of all time. But you have to judge each group, each generation. And of the current drivers, you have to say unquestionably, Lewis is the most dominant driver, albeit that he's had in the, in the hybrid era, by far and away the best equipment. But he's had to beat his teammate, and he did other than in one year when Rosberg gained the advantage. But Lewis is phenomenal. And even at his age today, 36, he has still got all the, the, the qualities that you need to win another world championship. And at the same time, live a life, which is a total contradiction, to that of being a, a professional Formula One driver. I mean, he's in America, he's doing fashion, he's doing you know, music. I don't know how, frankly, I don't know how he is able to, to separate those two sides of his life and at the same time come to a Grand Prix, get jump into the car with all the intensity that goes on, not just in the Grand Prix itself, but in the, in the process of getting to, going onto the grid for the start of the race. The cars are incredibly complex. The ability to communicate a lot of it is done now of course simulation work so that's a slightly different approach to where formula one would have been back in those early days nevertheless lewis has still got to get the car to suit his particular driving style requirements which he does and he is just i think sublime rebecca you're in the pit lane do you see uh the magic of Lewis Hamilton and he's able to compartmentalise his life that way and, and is he seen as the best driver out there in, in the pit lane? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think there's any question that people have huge respect for him. You know, he's, he's Marmite outside of F1 and um, people sort of love him or hate him. Um, but he transcends the sport. He's really good for the sport. But within F1, if you speak to anyone, even fans, they, you know, they may not particularly like him for whatever reason they choose, but they all respect what he's capable of. And you know, John was mentioning there about his fashion. And it, it just reminded me, I remember in 2018, we packed up from Italy and most of us went home because we were sh shattered after, you know, a double header, I think it was. And he went off to New York and he did a fashion show for, I think it's Hilfiger he does. And then he flew on to Singapore and he arrived in Singapore on, I think, Thursday morning. He has to do all the media day on Thursday. And then I remember on the Saturday, he put in, probably still to this day, his best ever qualifying lap. And he'd done some absurd air mileage between Italy and Singapore. And I think he'd even somehow ended up in China at some point in the sort of 10 days intervening. And he is just able to compartmentalise, as John says, and these different facets of his life. But they are actually what make him a better driver because when he turns up, he's not the Max Verstappen's of this world who only want to talk about racing or be on their sim. You know, Lando Norris is quite similar. George Ross was quite similar. They, he wants to do other things because that's what keeps him in love with racing. And, you know, he's, he's 36 now, he's getting on a bit. And um, he has to do these other things. And Toto Wolf made the point that when he signed him to Mercedes in 2013, he wasn't quite sure what to do with him or how to manage him. And he slowly realized that actually, if you give him the freedom that he's been after, which he didn't have at McLaren because Ron Dennis, you know, he managed with an iron fist. 
he had this freedom suddenly and he's come out of himself. And yes, he's had the dominant car, but you know, we shouldn't forget 2017, 2018, he was battling Ferrari, you know, and Ferrari were throwing all of their weight behind Sebastian Vettel. Vettel himself, a four-time world champion at the time. You know, Lewis Hamilton wasn't as successful as Vettel when they were battling. And, and he really had to go against it. And there was so much tension that year and eventually Ferrari faded away and, and we know what's happened since. But he's not had it all his own way. You mentioned 2016 as well, but he is a phenomenally relaxed guy as well. I, I ended up having brunch with him in London a few weeks ago. It's sort of a media event for British media. And there's only about four of us there. And you wouldn't believe that the next day he was about to fly out to Saudi Arabia. He was relaxed. He was asking us about our families. He was asking me what it's like to be one of the only women in the paddock, who, well, women in the media who do what I do it's on the written side. And like he was just chatting away like it was normal. And, and we were saying to him, we're like, oh, ha like, how are you? <laughs> and he was kind of like, yeah, no, I'm fine. Yeah, just, and we were like, oh, so like, yeah, I just wanted to see you and catch up because we haven't sat down for a while. So I thought in the run up to the end of the season. And it was like, it was brilliant to sit down with him and have time with him. But it was also, he was just so calm and relaxed. It was kind of hard to marry the two people, this, you know, the seven time world champion going for the record standalone eighth and about to go into the most intense two final races he's probably ever come into, you know, because it's it's far, far different fighting against a different team than it is fighting against your teammates. And we know 2016, he fell out with Rosberg, former best friends who don't talk anymore. Um, but this, this has definitely been his toughest season, I think, apart from maybe, as mentioned earlier, like Alonso in 2007, 2008. Um, but this, he's so calm. It's, it's, it's bamboozling, really. That was a fascinating fascinating insight into the mindset of Lewis Hamilton. Rebecca, thank you for that. We're going to have to wrap it up here. We're going to get your verdicts now, folks, on the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and the World Championship. 369 and a half points for both Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton. Verstappen, nine races to eight, so Verstappen finishes ahead of Hamilton. Or if they don't, both don't finish. Verstappen will be the World Champion for the first time. David Candy, how are you calling it? Uh, I think it will be a draw because they'll both have an accident and it'll be decided in, it'll be decided in the steward's room and uh, we'll hear about it for the next 12 years and it'll, and it'll go to Lewis Hamilton. John Watson, how are you calling it? Uh, I've got to go with the hunter rather than the hunted and uh, so I've got to go with Lewis because I think the momentum is with him. I think he's got all the, 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 the tools in the box that he needs within the team and within himself. And he knows what he's capable of doing. He knows what he has to do. And he has to win the race. Or he has to certainly, certainly finish ahead of Max. And I think that the things that Rebecca said, that relaxed nature that he is capable of, of putting on view, um, I think it's a, a natural element of his personality. So I would assume and I would hope that Lewis is going to be an eight times world champion. Max is going to have his day in the sun in future years because Lewis is not going to continue ad infinitum. Maybe Max doesn't know what patience is, but he might have to learn about patience this weekend. Rebecca, how'd you call it? I'm saying Lewis Hamilton, just because having seen him and spoken to him, he's so calm. I didn't feel like it was a front. I didn't feel like he was putting up a facade. It's, you know, I spent five years talking to this guy every other weekend and he kind of gets to know them a little bit. And, and you know, we walked in, it was fist pumps. It was talking to each other by name it's just he's just so relaxed he's so ready and he has all of the experience and you know David mentioned it you wake up on the Sunday you put on the helmet and you're a racer but the difference is Lewis Hamilton has won a couple of championships he's also lost a couple of championships he's been here before so he knows how to go into that race on Sunday so for me I think he'll have the edge Ireland is going to be glued the world is going to be glued to the showdown Rebecca Clancy John Watson David Candy thanks so much for your time for joining us on News Talking Off the Ball on the Saturday panel one o'clock, lights out tomorrow in Abu Dhabi, Irish time. Enjoy the race, folks. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. This is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. We're building up to Football Saturday with the latest on the Premier League after this. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball.